Fly low, take them. You have fun? Good. Let's go home and make supper. Welcome to the ND Outdoors Podcast. All right. Welcome to episode eight of the NDO Podcast. Uh, we have our host, myself, Kayla Bendel, and Chief of Wildlife, Casey Anderson. And on this episode, we have our North Dakota Game and Fish Survey Coordinator, Chad Parent, on. Thanks for. Being a victim. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so we're just going to talk a little bit about our wildlife surveys, um, some of the nuts and bolts, how they work, and, and then why we utilize them and how we make management decisions off of them. Um, hopefully encourage all of you to continue or start participating in those uh, crucial surveys as well. So, yeah. Uh, Chad, if you just want to start out with um, a little bit of your background, where you're from, and how one becomes a survey coordinator, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, well, thank you for the introduction there. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I should say this, but I, I grew up in Minnesota, um, and so I, 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 sometimes that's controversial. But um, Me too, so we're good. <laughs> that's that's yeah. two of you. We've changed yeah. you from the dark side. But, but the good thing is, is that uh, I grew up in East Grand Forks, so I think, like, by reciprocity, I'm, I'm probably effectively a North Dakota resident. <laughs> you guys had the Cabela's, and so you're good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess, and more seriously, I, we, my family, we split our time between East Grand Forks and uh, my folks' cabin on Round Lake in uh, west central Minnesota. And, you know, I kind of, like, in my heart, that's home. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like, that's where you get to be outside and, uh, you know, see all of the, um, I don't know, just observe things that are outside and, and all, I, that's where I kind of grew up, fostering my excitement for all of this stuff. And, uh, I did go to UND, so there is something to redeem myself there. So I, I, I uh, Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Depends who's listening. Um, yeah, I, uh, Got a fisheries and wildlife degree from University of North Dakota. Um, moved around the country a few other times to get a couple other degrees in wildlife and some statistics minors. And uh, that pretty much gets me to where I am now. You know, I, I, I guess I always kind of envisioned I'd end up like uh, R.J. Gross or Jesse Kohler or Upland Game Biologist because I was a game bird guy in, in graduate school. But um Along the way, I realized you could ask some really cool questions about wildlife if you had a data set, and you know you could try and answer those questions with some cool analyses, and that's where uh, I guess that kind of gets me to survey coordinator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in North Dakota, we've got some pretty long data sets. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> if I had all the time in the world, you know, like it would be like, <laughs> a lot of cool stuff could come from uh, North Dakota deer data. Um, you know, like almost fifty years of systematic data collection like that's pretty unheard of yeah. uh, across you know north america mm -hmm. yeah and then you get into the waterfall world and they really have some long data sets right yeah yeah and, and you know and and just kind of proof is in the pudding you know like the waterfall world for better or worse you know they are kind of held up on a pedestal as uh you know how to manage wildlife you know in a science-based manner and you know we're pretty much there with deer in north dakota as well so what all does a survey coordinator entail? I know this is kind of your busy season, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, just naturally all hunting seasons occur in the fall. And so um, the way that our seasons are structured for a whole lot of things, they pretty much end right at the end of the year. And, you know, within the past month, we've had a bunch of uh, big game seasons closed. So we've had some, you know, obviously the deer season closed uh, earlier this or on Sunday, the 20th. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, pronghorn season closed. And so, yeah, it's uh, like the, the survey coordinator. I mean, basically just what it sounds. We conduct surveys to collect information about uh, the harvest um, for all of our different seasons. And gosh, I, I lose track because we have, we're getting to a point now where we're doing sub-surveys of seasons to, you know, study slightly different things. But I think we send out, you know, between 19 to 22 surveys a year. You know, some of them are very big, some of them are very small. But um, yeah, that's kind of like, that's the role of a survey coordinator is to collect hunter harvest data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we're not talking about the, the ones where guys are flying surveys, counting deer. We're talking about paper email surveys folks are getting asking them where they hunted how much they harvested and things like that and and, uh, it's interesting because all of our surveys have a little different tweak reasons purposes um, that we send some of that stuff out for example like waterfall surveys those have they go farther than just our shop they go into the federal system um, so any surveys that we collect for there and and so can you explain, Chad, a little bit of the nuances of some of the things we're looking for in our surveys besides just harvest and how many? That's kind of the main goal in a lot of them. But Yeah, yeah. And so we're interested in a handful of things. I mean, obviously, were you successful, right? Um, and, you know, like I'm going to go off on a little tangent here because we often think about like, well, we just need to know if somebody was successful. But um, you know, understanding where people were unsuccessful is also really important, right? And so, um, you know, all of us have probably sat into some sort of a wildlife management 101 class where we've talked about the different ways that you, uh, you count things. And one of the things you learn is that uh, measuring how many things that you didn't count but were still actually out there is pretty important, right? And so um, along that line, you know, understanding where people were not successful in harvesting a deer or a a grouse or or a turkey or whatever is just as important as knowing where they were successful, right? And so, yeah, we care about uh, not just um, where people hunted and where they were successful, just generally like your full hunting activity, you know, where, where are the places you went? How many days did you go there? Um, And were you successful and from that information, we can kind of build a pretty interesting picture about um, the status of a wildlife population. And with the advancement of, you know, really powerful computers, we have like whole lots of new ways of looking at deer data and, you know, producing information just beyond, you know, where were people successful at harvesting to you know, kind of something that's pretty futuristic, like estimating a population size from just, you know, simple, humble harvest data. It's pretty wild stuff. And so, yeah, North Dakota has been at the vanguard of doing that, you know, for like 50 years now. And our surveys haven't really changed um, in any meaningful way. We're still collecting the same information, uh, the same general way. And, 
it uh, yeah, it, it allows us to get a really good picture of what deer populations are doing and what their trends are looking like across space and through time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times we'll hear folks talk about we need to change our surveys or do something, you know, different. And if you get different enough, it starts to be uncomparable to the years before. And so that's something that, you know, we'd like people to understand. It's kind of like, well, yeah, w- we can't change it too much or we'll end up not being able to use that previous data set or being able to compare those data sets to make a population kind of estimate or or idea of what's going on with all of the other data we collect as far as our, you know, these things go together with our aerial surveys that we do for deer and it kind of, they kind of proof each other almost in some aspects. And most of them that we do are kind of a random selection of folks that have a license for that species or something like that. But we do have some that we send out to everybody. I believe like the swan one, mm-hmm. we send out to everybody and, and, Tell us why one and why the other. Right, yeah. And so it, it kind of depends on the type of game, right? And so Casey mentioned swan. And, you know, we um, work with our federal partners uh, at the Fish and Wildlife Service to implement a swan season. And one of their criteria for, you know, having a season like that is that, you know, we have really good harvest surveys. And... Uh, because there's usually only, I think, 2,200 this year, mm-hmm. uh, swan tags. And it it's pretty straightforward, just capture all of the harvest, or at least endeavor to capture all of the harvest uh, from everybody. Um, but then some of our other surveys uh, for much larger harvest. So again, I, deer season is kind of easy to go back to. I, I forget how many licenses we allocated over this past year, but around... Uh, 60,000 oh, no, ish. Yeah, you're going to uh, put me on the spot. Just yeah. over 60,000. Chief of Wildlife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so to send out 60,000 surveys would be, you know, it's, we'd, it not only would it be an, an enormous uh, undertaking, but it's just not necessary because the way that our surveys have been designed, you know, it, like Casey kind of segued, it is a, um, it's, Technically, the lingo is it's a probabilistically designed sample survey. And what that means is that we, we randomly sample uh, a group of hunters, send them a survey, and assuming that those hunters are representative of all hunters, we can you know, draw some conclusions about uh, the status of a hunting season from their responses. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that, we'll get into some of the questions that we hear, um, like the why don't we survey them all? Like, you know, can you go into the, the issues with that? I mean, a, a, say a mandatory survey type of thing or, or just surveying them all, you know. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some nuances in that that don't sometimes fit in that people don't realize. Yeah, yeah. And so it, we kind of introduced survey, uh, probabilistic sample surveys, um, you know, the, the tool that Game of Fish uses. Um like Casey said, mandatory surveys are sort of the other kind of big tool that agencies use to collect hunter harvest data. And I mean, just defining them, they, they are exactly what they sound, right? Like if you draw a license or I I guess in some States you don't enter a, a lottery to get a deer license, but if you have a license and you shoot something, you have to report the, that animal. Right. And you know, there are, 
there are pros and cons to everything, right? I mean, there are pros and cons to the approach that we use, and there are pros and cons to the approach to um, mandatory reporting all of that information. Um, we're a small agency, and to um, you know, man all of the check stations, or if it's mandatory reporting through internet or telephone or whatever, um, you know, it's a it's a big human component to that, and we just don't have that footprint, and so that's one of the reasons why sample surveys work really well for us. But for the agencies that are using mandatory reporting, some of the cons are um, things that we don't even have to worry about. Um, so if, uh, if a, a mandatory reporting approach is used to collect harvest data, there are a few things that they're kind of interested in, right? So one of them is, did you even hunt? And so if you, if you just chose not to go hunting under a mandatory reporting system, the, the state agency wouldn't know that information, right? Um, similarly, if you just, you went hunting, but you didn't shoot anything, uh, again, under a mandatory harvest reporting system, the agency wouldn't know that. And then uh, kind of the other situation is maybe even worse is if, I mean, theoretically, everybody is reporting 100% honestly, but, you know, they're just, some people just never get around to it, whether it's, you know, intentional or unintentional. Um, you know, y- you may have harvested something, you just, forget to report it. And, you know, at the end, when you, when you uh, assemble all of those kind of little cons, uh, it, it sort of requires some adjustment to the mandatory reporting data. And they end up, oftentimes, if they're doing a good job, they end up sending out a separate survey anyway to collect mm-hmm. the additional information they'd need to kind of calibrate some of those issues. And so, it's kind of six in one, half dozen in the other. Um, you know, if you have uh, a state where 100% of your people are mandatorily reporting, then you're, you're going to get really good information back and a lot of it. But the research shows that that's not really the norm. And, um, yeah, it's just, like I said, you know, it's, there are a lot of trade-offs to both. And in North Dakota, the way that our, our uh, agency is structured the experience that our hunters have over 50 years of returning these surveys. I mean, it's almost gotten to be like a cultural thing, right? Like you like steer season. Oh, I got my deer survey. I better return it, you know? And so we have that cachet with our, our surveys and it, like moving to introducing a different way or making it mandatory would just be really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, and then of course, like we talked before, if we went mandatory, we wouldn't be able to use our old data sets to compare what's happening in the mandatory survey because it would be totally, totally different how, why people are sending them in, you know. And uh, But it brings us to a point that even if you don't go goose hunting in the early goose season, mark that down and send it in because that's information that we can use for some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, and and maybe I'm jumping forward a little bit, but... You know, we often think, well, I didn't shoot anything. It doesn't really matter because they're only interested in, you know, how many deer were harvested. But again, you know, knowing where people were unsuccessful uh, or successful is just as important as, you know, knowing where they were successful. And what that means, though, uh, getting into the, you know, the future when we're trying to make decisions about how many tags you put on the ground, um, if you harvested something, and didn't report it on one of our surveys. And, you know, I get it. Everybody's human. You know, we, we don't have time to like answer all of our emails. I'm the, probably the worst person. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, uh, 
But if you harvested something and don't report it, it may mean that we actually um, unnecessarily reduce the number of tags, you know. So it's not always like if you report something, we're, we're going to increase tags or reduce tags. Like just like mm-hmm. the information uh, collectively, it, just, it paints a helpful picture. And it often means tags go up. It doesn't necessarily mean tags will go down if you report your harvest because uh, it's your one response is just one of, you know, 13,000 different responses that we get back on the deer survey. Mm-hmm. And it also lends us into looking at things in an area maybe a little different. If one unit, a bunch of people turn in their survey and say they didn't harvest and we happen to get enough snow so we can fly it effectively and we see that the population is really pretty good, then we have to start digging into what's going on here. Is it is it an access thing? Is it, you know some other weird nuance, you know, um, but yeah. And so the, those things, then we can add all that information together and come up with our, you know, license recommendations for the next year. I would imagine like effort too, like days spent before a harvest or days spent with an unsuccessful harvest, obviously help feed the model or paint the picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's kind of, uh, <laughs> this is kind of my opportunity to like, really geek out with yeah. you guys because I thought a lot about this in a different life uh, as a postdoc. Um, so yeah, hunting effort is pretty important to understanding um, what harvest data is, right? So if you have two identical places, two identical hunting areas, and you know Kayla went out and she shot 10 pheasant, and Casey went out and shot one pheasant, Sounds like Kayla's a pretty epic hunter, right? But if Kayla hunted 100 days and Casey only hunted a morning, then, like, well, I I think I'd have to give it to Casey, right? So, (laughs) like, how many days you hunt is really needed to correct uh, just the raw numbers of harvest, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, like I said, you know, all of it paints a pretty full picture of what harvest looks like. And that's why those waterfall surveys, when you get them, you know, it's it's got the whole calendar on it, and you're checking off, you know, number of days that you hunted trying to remember that, you know. But then at the end, you put down 20 ducks, harvested 20 ducks. Well, if I spent 30 days harvesting 20 ducks, that's going to tell them versus, you know, four days. So... I always have to, like, scroll through my phone photos and, like, dates. <laughs> like, all right, what, what were we doing on this weekend and... I usually ask my kids. They remember it now better than I do. What day did we go out by the lake? Oh, yeah. I try and save my wings for uh, Mm -hmm. Jesse and RJ to count. And so that's kind of my – I have a handful of different places that I hunt, and I kind of know, like, about how many. Yeah, but it's always – It's getting easy for me now to tell when I hunted because if I look back at my calendar, I have to plan (laughs) when I hunt. (laughs) So I don't get meetings scheduled or things like that. So it's There's no like meetings <laughs> on this Friday. That's right. What, so what I, I, I was hunting, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, maybe let's get into, maybe this is Casey will t- add in a little bit here, but then kind of like ultimately the, some of the management decisions that get made from these. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess, you know, like, like we talked about with deer a lot, it's one of the tools that we use to come up with, the deer allocation for the next year 
Um, but it goes deeper than that. I mean, it's little things we can look at with all this information to help target our private lands programs. Um, what our wildlife management areas maybe are doing or need to do or need to change. Um, and then just the general, you know, kind of overall picture of, you know, five years from now, where do we want to be? Where do we need to be? You know, um, there's always those odd things that are going to pop up. EHD, you know, we the area that was hit with EHD was a, a large population of deer, actually. We had an extra 400 herd reduction licenses along the Missouri River just to try to reduce the herd of deer. Well, EHD decided we weren't doing it fast enough. <laughs> so it, it took care of it for us in some some respects, but probably went farther than we would have, you know. Um, so we have to throw those nuances in there. But I don't know, Chad, anything to yeah. add on some of that stuff? Pheasant, you know, pheasant data and things like that. We don't change the limit for pheasants very often. Um, it's never been done in my career. But, you know, in with pheasants, we are shooting roosters. And so to shoot enough roosters on the landscape, to affect if a, a hen pheasant can have a nest or not, and a viable nest or not is, is probably not really good. I know we like to think we're good pheasant hunters, but to shoot them all so that we don't have reproduction is a little far out there. I mean, if the population got low, low enough, obviously there may be some reasons to do it. But if we don't have that continual information, we will never know when the population gets low enough to pull those triggers. And so, yeah, sometimes it seems mundane that we're doing this and we've got these long data sets, but if we don't have those comparison data sets and what's going on across, you know, the world and our brood surveys and our crow count surveys, we would never know where that trigger is. Yeah, I think actually Jesse talked about <coughs> that on mm-hmm. our Upland Bird Podcast just um, when previously the sage grouse season was open, just having the ability to know from our surveys that Hunting wasn't the reason mm-hmm. for their yeah, decline. Yeah, that too. Um, so stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I think harvest data kind of fills in the gaps in uh, of our knowledge, right? You know, kind of Casey mentioned. You know, we'll take pheasants for example. We do a handful of different roadside counts uh, for pheasants throughout the spring and getting into late summer. And you know, we do all of our harvest surveys. Uh, Jesse and RJ are out there, you know, they're talking to field staff, they're talking to game wardens, you know, so we have like biologically, we know how to make a pheasant survive in North Dakota. It's kind of all of that intractable stuff in the middle that, you know, harvest data kind of helps us fill in those gaps, right? And so, um, again, I'm probably just repeating what Casey just said, but we have really, you know, when you do it, when you collect data in the exact same way for a number of years, you know, like, if you're, you know, if you're a stock guy, you might look at a 10-year trend in a, an index mutual fund, right? And so you can kind of see that ebb and flow through time. Well, uh, a population trend does the exact same thing, where we can go back and say, okay, well, this was 2004. We had a lot of pheasant harvested back then. And, and what were the conditions on the ground? Like, we, we can use 2004, or I'm, I'm, I'm throwing that year out mm-hmm. there, but um, what was that interesting about that year that we 
we put it up as a benchmark to say, like, this was good conditions. Let's try and recreate these conditions on the ground, um, you know, structurally with our licensing. Uh, like, let's, let's mimic that so that we can try and have another good year. One thing that's always interesting that I find is in North Dakota, our North Dakota hunters are pretty good at sending back surveys. I mean, overall, we have a fairly high return rate on surveys. Obviously, we don't get all of them. Um, But explain a little bit of, you know, these random surveys and then the importance of the return rate, you know. And I know like a lot of other states who send out a lot more surveys, as far as number-wise, for some of their species, just because their population is bigger or they sell more licenses or whatever that might be. But our return rate is pretty dang good in North Dakota. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, it part of it is, again, like that cultural attache associated with uh, returning your survey in North Dakota. I mean, I, I, again, we obviously want it always to be higher, but um, we've been sending surveys to North Dakotans you know, the same general way for many, many, many years. And that helps a lot, right? So constantly introducing something new and changing up on them and making it confusing to return information about your harvest. Yeah, people are going to say, ah, I, I don't even know what they're asking me anymore. Or I, I, I don't, yeah. And so we don't do that. We've, you know, pretty much used a mail survey for 45 plus years until I came on board about five years ago and we started introducing internet surveys. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one really important thing. Um, in terms of why we want to get a lot back, uh, it, it just, it gives us better information. You know, it's just like maybe a good example is, uh, if you're out there <laughs> like me, unfortunately on uh, the coldest, windiest day of, uh, the year before the deer season, uh, trying to set your deer rifle in, uh, you know, the more shots you take, uh, the better, uh, hopefully, uh, center you're going to get and you're kind of looking for like am I where am I at am I all over the target or am I like am I precise and if you if you take more shots and you spend time dialing dialing in your scope you're going to get to a point where you get pretty precise where you're at one inch above your bullseye at 100 yards or whatever your ballistics are are, Mm -hmm. for your given choice of rifle right well surveys are the same way the more of those we get back the more precise we can measure harvest. And so that's, you know, that's why, you know, response rates are kind of an umbrella term for just getting a lot of surveys back. But the reason that's important is so that we can measure harvest as accurately and precisely as possible. Mm -hmm. And you've been working on some of these electronic, comparing it, like sending out the same surveys electronically or mail. Mm -hmm. And what you're finding so far is that's, that's pretty good as far as response rate and things on electronic, maybe even sometimes better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have pretty cool hunters here in, in the state. Um, pretty much whatever you put in front of them, they're going to return to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what, I, uh, you know, we've done some research with the University of North Dakota to look at some of this. And, uh, yeah, I, whatever survey we give them first, they're going to return at a really high rate. And the the Internet version uh, of that survey, and, again, the the alternative would be a mail survey that we have to, mm-hmm. you know, physically print, drop in the mail, have you complete and return and send back to us in a, a st- um, self-addressed envelope. Um, the internet survey has a lot of advantages that way. Um, you know, one, I mean, it just, it costs the agency a lot less money and, you know, 
I think I can, you know, pretty safely say in front of my boss that we're, we're going to collect the best data possible, no matter how much money it costs. And so whether that's a mail survey or an internet survey, you know, it doesn't really matter, but that's just one of the kind of latent benefits of an internet survey is that it does save us money, but more importantly is we get data back in real time, you know, like, so I think just on our gun survey alone, after maybe four hours, Casey, we had like 13% response rate, which is incredible. You know, like mm-hmm. we sent out almost 20,000 surveys and that means we got back about 1400 of them in, in four hours. And, you know, in snail mail, like we'd still be like, they'd still be on their way to some folks mm-hmm. in the state. And, and so, yeah, there's a, there's some, a lot of power to knowing what harvest looks like in real time. And, um, Again, you know, we're not like we're waiting for everything to come in before we make strong conclusions. But having a preliminary say, you know, like, hey, yeah, you're right. Maybe there were some weird things happening in this unit. Like, or maybe like when you get to an advisory mm-hmm. board meeting, Casey, I don't know. Yeah. But the other thing it does too is the faster we get it back, the the more time it gives us to to do those data comparisons. Those you know, look at those other sets because we have time frames that we'll then have to put together the number of licenses that go out, get that in the proclamation and get them, you know, up to the governor's office to sign. And, and, uh, so yeah, the, and then it saves you, saves you time to be able to dig into other data as well by those online surveys and things like that. And so it just, I mean, when you talk about, you know, mandatory surveys, Chad, you're going to be opening 63,000 envelopes, you know, in three weeks that, that looks a lot different. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot yeah. of time. Well, and, and a perfect example of that is, you know, our elk season, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we have that season closes at the end of the year and our own internal uh, deadlines are to start drafting a, plo- a proclamation that we can pass along to you uh, and then Jeb who can forward it up to the governor. And that's like early February. And right. so that's an incredible amount of turnaround time. If you're still waiting on getting surveys back because you sent it out, you know, the end of December and people, you know, for, for whatever reason, like the take time getting the mm-hmm. surveys back. Yeah. It's uh, an internet survey, having the ability to get a substantial portion of your harvest collected in the first day is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to go. You could probably go on and on about, biases and some of that but um there's some of that that gets accounted for I guess I just know um I always turn it back but it's it's always a little bitter to fill your survey out and mark the uh unsuccessful so (laughs) some of that gets fed in there as well yep uh so we because North Dakota has traditionally pretty high response rates and it's kind of an unwritten rule in the literature right like once you hit a 60 percent response rate you can generally like not worry too much about any biases that may be associated with uh, the data that people submit uh, but every handful of years we'll, we'll go in and check like okay you you didn't return a survey why is that you know is it is it because you you know you you had an axe to grind and you're just so upset and you just we're protesting and not returning your survey. And, you know, that we actually care about that, right? We want to be able to measure those types of uh, reactions. And we don't really get any of those types of reactions. But um, the problem would be is if there were enough and we didn't account for that, that we would be underestimating or overestimating, just producing, you know, estimates of a, of a harvest that were incorrect. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Or they're just mad at me, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got that kind of face, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, harvest surveys are, they're a really important piece. And agencies, it's kind of like the primary piece of information that we have to fill in all of the other gaps that, you know, are not, are unfilled by the other data we collect. You know, like aerial surveys during the winter work really well when there's a lot of snow on the ground, but when there's not, there's still that piece of information you need to help us understand, like, what did the deer population look like going into the winter? And if we, you know, if we have good information on harvest, it can help kind of, you know, inform what that might look like. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's an extension of, you know, the role of a hunter is to report out on, you know, the status of your hunt. Like, I think that your, your role as a hunter doesn't stop, you know, after you pull the trigger or before you pull the trigger, like, you know, you kind of have all these unwritten rules, like, you know, you, you make good decisions when you're out on somebody's land and you're closing gates and you're, you know, leaving the places cleaner than you left it. And, you know, like if you're hunting with buddies, you have unwritten rules, like you don't, you know, tell their dog what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think, um, that one might need to be written down. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Depends on the buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I think harvest surveys are kind of that, uh, you know, in that vein. Maybe not to the degree of, you know, like telling your buddy how to handle his dog, but that would, yeah, that's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. You could tell my dog what to do, but he ain't going to listen to you because he <laughs> don't listen to me either. <laughs> uh, this past weekend, we, if, honestly, for the most part, it wasn't that, he's he's pretty good, but forgot, well, we have two callers, and we brought one remote and the other caller, and so they did not pair. Um, <laughs> so there was no communicating with the dog. But more importantly, I think, was just not knowing that the dog w- was on point. And it's like, where's the dog? <laughs> Haven't seen him in five minutes. He's on point somewhere in this cattail slew. But uh, I, have, I have a beeper on mine, and mm-hmm. uh, it, I, we can locate him. Yeah, that's that. We have that. The, yeah. the same thing. But, but without it. <laughs> I don't use it very often, and so he gets, uh, like, he just runs to me right away, like, "What the heck? What, what's up, Dad? What yeah. do, uh, you called me?" Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, yeah I, I probably need to um, train him better. But <laughs> yeah. I mostly just like to hang out with my dog. I kind of subscribe to the, the <laughs> theory that you should spoil your hunting dogs. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, he's my buddy. Yeah, I get a golden retriever, and he's pretty much just out there to have fun, and that means do whatever he wants mm-hmm. at this point. But if I can hone what fun <laughs> is, that's that's the goal. He's He'll one, get there. One year old. So my, yeah, my guy's still a puppy. He doesn't look back at me with that side-eyed glance, like uh, <laughs> oh, you idiot. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> he doesn't do that yet. But uh, he's mostly just excited to hang out and go on rides and chase <laughs> birds. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thanks for being on, Chad. Uh, again. Fill out your surveys. Yeah, it's part of being a responsible hunter and um, gives us a lot of valuable information. So it's not spam when you see <laughs> an email from Chad in your <laughs> inbox um, or, or return those mail ones. Either way, it's distributed to you. And we'll get into the department droppings. So um, by the time this podcast airs, a lot of hunting seasons wrapping up, many of them um, on that Sunday in January, January 1st. But um Still some things going on, too. Yeah, we have some late-season opportunities. Um, Our squirrel season is open through February 28th. 
We've got um, coyote cable devices and night hunting ending on March 15th, but both a squirrel and coyote, an opportunity to get out there still in, is, um, in the new year, even if it's brutally cold. Yeah, yeah and then, the, of course, with cold comes ice fishing, so you can get your, get your gear ready and make sure your ice auger starts. There's already been a few people out, I know. Yeah, this is some of the earliest ice we've had since I've lived here. But um, mm-hmm. I know it's not that unusual. It's just the last couple of years. Haven't gotten ice this early. Um, and with that, we've got free fishing weekend, December 31st and January 1st. So residents can fish without a fishing license. Um, so get the family out for the holidays and give it a try and then enjoy it. So you buy your license so you can fish the rest of the season. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, and we just uh, recommend that everybody be careful on, you know, snow and ice and weak spots on ice. Pay attention to what you're doing the ice right now isn't super thick. Um, we're looking to be set up for some decent ice, though, as we go into winter, if this pattern holds, for sure. You know, now that we've dropped the droppings, get off the pot and enjoy the outdoors. <laughs>